from WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. On the show today, the Task Force on State Recognition of Indian Tribes met for the last time without being able to agree on any set criteria for recognizing tribes in Louisiana. We hear from two chiefs of Louisiana Native American tribes to learn more about their struggles in gaining recognition and why this is so important. Plus, the USS Kidd Veterans Museum in downtown Baton Rouge has a new permanent exhibit all about pirates. Museum Executive Director Parks Stevenson tells us more. But first, the New Orleans City Council is getting closer to passing new laws governing short-term rentals like Airbnbs. WWNO's Carly Berlin has been tracking the potential changes. She sat down with Louisiana Considered producer Alana Schreiber to debrief us on current news and to tell us what's coming next. So, Carly, City Council is getting down to the wire with these new short-term rental laws. What exactly are they considering? Yeah, the council has to pass new laws by the end of the month because of this court order deadline. Now, little recap, last year, a federal court ruled that a key part of the city's existing short-term rental law was unconstitutional. That key part was an owner occupancy requirement. And it basically said, if you want to have a short-term rental in a residentially zoned area, you have to prove it's your primary residence. But then the court said that discriminated against out-of-state investors. So now the city's trying to figure out another way to rein in short-term rentals, specifically in residential areas, without that requirement. And at a lot of recent public meetings, the discussions have kind of boiled down to one key point, which is how many short-term rentals should be allowed on any given block. Back in January, the City Planning Commission recommended that short-term rentals be limited to one per block face, which is zoning jargon for side of the block. But then a lot of people from really all sides of the short-term rental debate shot down that idea. Airbnb owners said it was way too strict and would pit neighbors against each other and, you know, a potential lottery system to get permits. And on the other side of things, housing advocates and leaders from neighborhood associations, they said, you know, one per block was too loose and it let way too many short-term rentals keep operating. And city council seems to have listened to that second group who wants stricter laws. A couple weeks ago, council advanced a measure that would limit short-term rentals to one per square. Wait, a square? What does that mean? (laughs) Yeah, that's a fair question. So imagine a typical city square block, you know, have that square in your head. What the council proposed was only allowing one short-term rental on, you know, any of the sides of that square. That's, of course, more restrictive than allowing one short-term rental on each block face, each side of that square. So it's a difference between, you know, one per square versus potentially four per square. For all of you visual thinkers out there, we've got a little graphic on our site showing this at www.no.org. But yeah, I should say, you know, this recommendation, the one per square thing, it's far from final. Some council members a couple weeks ago said they want to find some kind of middle ground between one per block face and one per square And they can still make those changes in the next few weeks. So then what comes next? 
So this week on Tuesday the 14th, there's going to be another short-term rental meeting. And this one, they're going to be discussing kind of a different side of things, which is enforcement. The city has faced a lot of criticism in the past for its lax enforcement of the existing short-term rental laws over the last couple of years. A lot of critics say there are now far more illegal short-term rentals than there are legally permitted ones. So as the city's figuring out this question of, you know, how many short-term rentals should be allowed in a given area, they're also going to be figuring out things like fines and penalties for people who don't comply. And part of that, too, is figuring out a potential lottery system for, you know, the per block or per square requirement, too. You know, how what how does that mechanism work to get permits, especially if you're someone who's had one in the past? Then after all that, on March 23rd, that's the final day where the council's planning to to vote on what these new laws will be. Carly Berlin is the Metro reporter for WWNO. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Last week, we spoke with Louisiana public broadcasting filmmaker Ben Johnson about his new documentary on the Pointed Chin Indian tribe as they grapple with challenges like climate concerns, language loss, and the struggle for official recognition. But the Pointed Chin are far from the only tribe in Louisiana seeking federal recognition. In fact, just a few weeks ago, the task force on state recognition of Indian tribes met for the last time without being able to agree on any set criteria for recognizing tribes in Louisiana. Fifteen tribes are now recognized, but there are still not clear criteria for determining if others should be. Joining us for more about this task force, what's working and what isn't, is Chief Troy Carey of the Appalachian Tribe and Elder Chief Sherelle Parfait-Dardar of the Grand Caillou Duloc Band of Biloxi Chittimacha Choctaw. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I'd like to start with history here. Chief Carey, could you tell us a bit about the origins of the Appalachian tribe, how they ended up coming from northwest Florida to Louisiana? Well, we were burned out of there by uh, the Spanish. They uh, were burning the uh, all the cities that were Native American in upper Florida. They kind of split up, and they, we think they went in like 14 different directions, and we were one of the bands that came to Louisiana. Nobody knew that we were still alive. I mean, we were hiding in the woods of uh, Bicep in the middle of Louisiana for uh, over 100 years until a uh, priest who just happened to be walking down the street, he seen a little trail going into the woods, and he followed that trail in, and he found us. We were in there. Had, we had two villages already built up. So we had a place for uh, schools. We had done went and built up a little city, what is now called the Kasachi Forest. They say there's like 325 Appalachian that they think is alive. Um, 279 are on our roll. And Chief Carey, to this day, the fight has changed a bit, but it's still a fight, a fight for survival. Chief Dardar, could you give us some of the background on the Grand Caillou Duloc Band of, of Biloxi Chittimacha Choctaw? I understand that the tribe did receive state recognition in 2004. Could you tell us about that? Yes. So, uh, of course, the, the Chittimacha, if you look back at the, you know, the history of Louisiana, once upon a time, you know, it, basically the whole southeastern portion of Louisiana were Chittimacha, right? And that's why our, our elders, our ancestors said that we've always been here because we always have. Uh, around 
the 1800s, which people are familiar with the Trail of Tears, right? The Indian re removal era, the Biloxi and Choctaw, you know, they were being uh, pushed out of their homelands that were east of the Mississippi. And um, one of our ancestors received Choctaw script. And, you know, they made their way down here to Louisiana rather than going off to Oklahoma. So those ancestors, along with our Ch Chittimacha ancestors, uh, came together and intermarried. And here we are today, still in the same place. And as I mentioned, in 2004, the tribe did receive state recognition, which is, you know, something that many tribes are still fighting for. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's that's correct. So the, the fight for state recognition was very, very difficult because there was no process. Right. It wasn't. A, OK, bring us your evidence, you know, and, and confirm who you are, like the federal government now has a process. Instead, my elders sought state recognition through Judiciary B. We were very fortunate, you know, that our history was indisputable and we were able to show, you know, who we are. We've been here. And uh, we're granted state recognition, but it still has some challenges because all of the tribes that received state recognition have differing resolutions. The language is not the same. So our because of the way that our resolutions were written, um, we've had to inquire about our state recognition, whether or not we were fully state recognized. And we did get confirmation of that, that there are no levels to state recognition. You either are or aren't. But that, that hasn't prevented others from trying to challenge our state recognition because our resolution was worded a bit differently from others. And you still are, are, are fighting for federal recognition, correct? Oh, yes, absolutely. We've been in that process now for over 26 years. We found out that the main thing that was holding us up was a concise written narrative. So it wasn't enough that we provided the evidence that meets the criteria. Now they want all of that evidence combined into this like 600 page narrative that, that none of our people have th that type of training or expertise to be able to do. So fortunately, we've been able to work with some attorneys uh, to get that drafted up and hopefully we'll be submitting uh, this year. Chief, Chief Kerry, could you tell us more about uh, state and federal recognition? Why is it important and what does it provide for a tribe? Well, state recognition doesn't really provide anything really for a tribe. It just gives us a, uh, you know, they have a Native American commission that is set up in Baton Rouge and they meet like every three, three or four months. And when they make decisions upon about Native Americans, we would like to be able to voice our opinions on it and, and be able to vote on uh, decisions that are being made on our behalf. Now, federal, we we filed our federal back in 1997, but uh, due to you know problems within the tribe, that changed in 2015, and we're going to have to go for that again. Now, when you go for federal, though, um, it's easier to get grants. It's, it helps your kids go with school. Like I have a, a grandchild now that that's fallen behind, so she needs a, a tutor, and and that would help her, you know, help her family with getting a tutor. So it's, it's just things like that, right? And so it seems that there's there are more advantages with that federal recognition than the state recognition. Yes. Now the state recognition, though, I have elders in my tribe. There's there's thirty thirty two elders. They just want somebody to 
say they know us. They know who we are. They don't want to go to their grave and not be recognized by some some government entity. We're speaking with Chief Troy Carey of the Appalachian Tribe and Elder Chief Sherelle Parfait-Dardar of the Grand Caillou Duloc Band of Biloxi, Chittimacha, Choctaw. Chief Troy, can you tell us a bit about the Native American Commission? What is its role and the relationship between the commission and the government here in Louisiana? When we when we uh, found out about the, the Native American Commission, you know, it was in 2019, we started going to every meeting that we could go to, uh, but we have no we have no vote. We have no say because we're not state recognized. Right. And, and Chief Dodar, we should mention you recently resigned from this commission. So I'll, I'll pose that question. The role, what was the role supposed to be between uh, this commission and, and the government here in Louisiana? And, and why did you resign from the commission? So we believe the intent for the Native American Commission was to provide the tribes with a platform to be able to collaborate with state government, right? Especially in regards to challenges, needs, resources, information. I believe that it was well-intended. We did not participate in its entirety of its creation. And once, once it took hold and we began to participate, of course, I ended up being elected the the chairperson. And uh, we started recognizing a lot of the challenges that were there. And as my knowledge is prior to, you know, right before my resignation, those same tribes had still never appointed a representative to serve. And um, when you have 15 tribes that are recognized across the state, you know, trying to get into a central location on one day can present a challenge when you have a quorum requirement. Um, this is not the first state that has tried to do this. You, you can look at other states and see that they've had very successful commissions, I believe, since the 70s. Uh, however, Louisiana is running into some challenges with, you know, creating the process of, of their own. Of course, you know, now we had the state recognition task force that was created. Personally, I, I've always felt that was necessary because the legislature could have easily come to the commission and and sat with us and communicated with us. And the commission chose three out of the seven criteria from the federal criteria for state recognition, which again, were already written out. So there there was no need for some of the things that I I witnessed that were happening. Um, And with all of the challenges and, and my schedule, the way it is and the work that I'm involved in, and I'm a mother, as well, right? I have a, a personal life and family that I, I need to tend to. I had to make some really hard decisions and I didn't see any progress being made in the commission. And unfortunately, I, I saw a lot of politics happening rather than sitting down and trying to come up with actual solutions. So I, I chose to resign. Chief Kerry, you were at the, the last meeting. Could you talk about what happened why were the tribal leaders unable to agree on criteria? What were some of the big sticking points? We did have quorum in one of the meetings one time, and the uh, the criteria was set at that time. And two tribes were uh, set to get recognition. So we go to Jude B. I mean, it was more like a bully session. Um, and you were talking about Judiciary Committee B? This is going yeah. before the legislature. Yes. Mm-hmm. You get up and you'll see how they treated us. I mean, it was it was horrible. It was really horrible. 
So one of the senators that was bringing one of the other tribe up decided, okay, let's let's just get a task force. Now I, I believe that uh, I believe that she had good intentions whenever she you know wanted to get this task force going, so they could set some parameters and set the uh, the uh, criteria down. But the criteria is our criteria has already been set. It's just all we needed was you know was them to look at it and move forward with it. How and would then, you like it to be if if you could say this is how it's going to happen? What what what's the answer there? What, what how would you like to see this done? I believe that the Native Americans, all the Native American tribes in this state, know who 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 is tribal and who's not. They know who a tribe is. Their input should be worth more than you know these these legislatures who has no idea about Native Americans. They don't know who we are. They don't know where we come from. They don't know anything about us, and they don't care to know. But these other tribes know us, and they care to know who we are. Chief Troy Carey of the Appalachian Tribe and Elder Chief Sherelle Parfait-Dardar of the Grand Cayu Dulac Band of Biloxi Chittimacha Choctaw, thank you both so much for your time today. Yes, ma'am. God bless you. Thank you, Karen. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. The USS Kidd Veterans Museum in downtown Baton Rouge has a new permanent exhibit inside the museum building, Pirates, the story behind the Pirate of the Pacific. The exhibit is housed within a full-scale replica of an 18th century pirate ship's gun deck. Visitors walking through the deck will learn the story of Captain William Kidd, who's described by historians as America's most ruthless buccaneer. Here to tell us more about this new edition is Museum Executive Director Parks Stevenson. Parks, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Now, Parks, this exhibit is an origin story for the USS Kidd. Anyone visiting the riverfront in downtown Baton Rouge has seen the giant U.S. Navy ship that's moored there but many get the story wrong. There are a lot of common misconceptions, so let me let you clear it up. What are the main misconceptions, and what's the truth? Well, one of the main misconceptions uh, that the visitors might have was one shared by the crew of the kid back in 1943. They looked at their ship as being named after a a famous pirate, when in fact uh, the ship was named after a rear admiral by the name of Isaac C. Kidd, who was killed aboard the USS Arizona during the Pearl Harbor attack. But the crew saw themselves with a fighting spirit like they would see in their in popular Hollywood movies at the time, a dashing, swashbuckling pirate. And the most famous pirate of all was Captain Kidd. So the ship is not named after a pirate, even though you see a pirate flag and a pirate painted on a smokestack. But the crew made it that way, and they carried that spirit with them throughout World War II and into Korean War and the Cold War beyond. So they adopted this William Kidd, this pirate, as their mascot. So that's the number one thing, not named after William Kidd the pirate, but after U.S. Naval Rear Admiral Isaac Campbell Kidd. Why? But I know in the exhibit you you tell the story of both of these men. Why did you decide to tell both stories? Well, because Kid basically embodies the spirit of both. Um, he was named after Admiral Kid and carries that naval tradition forward. But 
that special elan that the crew had that that um, that laugh in the face of danger that they saw in the movie serials with Tyrone Power or Douglas Fairbanks, that laughing, bold, dashing pirate. That's how they saw themselves and that's how they conducted themselves. And actually, it was the widow of Admiral Kidd who saw this in the crew and she supported it. She didn't think it was disrespectful that they tended to go more toward Captain Kidd than her husband, Admiral Kidd. And she actually petitioned the U.S. Navy to officially allow Kidd to fly the pirate flag. And that's why she's the only U.S. Navy warship that's authorized to fly the pirate flag. Much of the stories that you tell here, they're, they're told to visitors as they move through what you, you all have somehow been able to recreate in this museum, a full-scale replica of an 18th century pirate ship's gun deck. Can you walk through with us? What will people see? As they approach the exhibit on the upper floor of the museum, uh, they will see the outside, the broadside of um, 18th century warship, uh, two cannon. Uh, there will be a sign with the exhibit name on it and an entrance and an exit. When you first walk into the entrance, you'll be uh, you'll see the life of Captain William Kidd. You'll go back back in time to learn about that particular man who supposedly is one of the most ruthless pirates of all time. But was he? Was he a pirate or was he a pirate hunter? And from there, you'll look at the differences between fictional pirates and actual pirates. Uh, because we're housed here in the state of Louisiana, we wanted to also bring up the history of Jean Lafitte, Louisiana's own pirate, and how important he was to the development of New Orleans and Southern Louisiana. Basically, we claim that he's the pirate who saved New Orleans. We're speaking with USS Kidd Veterans Museum Executive Director Park Stevenson about a new exhibit, Pirates, the story behind the Pirate of the Pacific. Of course, now we know that Pirate of the Pacific is what the USS Kidd Navy ship was known as during World War II, the Korean War, the Cold War, because their mascot was the legendary pirate. Um, do you do you know of any stories? Did did even the adoption of this mascot, flying of the flag, even painting of a, of a pirate on the side of the ship, strike fear in the hearts of those who came across the USS Kid? A, a destroyer is the, uh, tasked usually with running supplies to larger ships like carriers and battleships, cruisers. Uh, destroyers also will pick up downed aviators. Uh, and and bring them back to their home carriers. But before a kid would do that, she'd come alongside and say, okay, I've got your pilot here. Oh, what are you going to give me for? What booty do you have <laughs> no. to exchange for your pilot? Uh, oh, destroyers, destroyers didn't have ice cream machines, but the carriers, larger ships like the carriers and the battleships did. So a lot of times ice cream was a preferred product until – during one port visit, uh, kids suddenly and mysteriously got their own ice cream machine, which we do have aboard the ship and see on the tour. Did they steal it? I don't mm. know. What would a pirate do? Oh, my gosh. USS Kid Veterans Museum Executive Director Parks Stevenson. Parks, thanks for joining us on Louisiana Considered. Thank you for having me. It was fun. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Thanks to our guest, Chief Troy Carey of the Appalachee Tribe. 
Elder Chief Sherelle Parfait Dardar of the Grand Caillou Duloc Band of Biloxi Chittimacha Choctaw, USS Kidd Veterans Museum Executive Director Parks Stevenson, and WWNO Metro reporter Carly Berlin. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, our digital editor, Caitlin Omholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman and Aubrey Procell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Historic New Orleans Collection.